When our children are born, within 24 hours, they are no longer in their purest form. Within 24 hours, our children are vaccinated with not one, but two vaccines unless you deny those vaccines. Our children don't even get a chance to live in their purest form into their natural immunity where they are the most innocent little babies. Within 24 hours, actually much faster than that, our children are taken from our arms and injected with two different vaccines. One vaccine, which technically isn't a vaccine, it's a vitamin, or so we think. And the other vaccine is for a sexually transmitted disease that we're giving to our newborns. This week's episode is our first episode of our series on the vaccine schedule, where I am going to dive deep into every single vaccine that we vaccinate for and the actual viruses or germs or diseases that we're vaccinating for and really break it down. Do we need these vaccines? What's in these vaccines? What are the side effects of these vaccines? I want to break them down. And I want to break them down, not only in chronological order of when they are administered to our children, but in detail. And so I chose the two vaccines that are administered on day one of our children's lives. And that's the hepatitis B vaccination and the vitamin K shot. We're going to dive so deep that I really urge you to really listen to these episodes. You know, we are quite a few episodes deep into our vaccine conversation. And so far we've covered important topics that I do really want you to remember. We cover topics like long-term safety studies, placebo studies, financial interests, ingredients. We talk about polio. We talk about so many different topics, and I want you to remember these things as we move forward into this series of our vaccine conversation, where we're going to break down each disease, each vaccine we vaccinate for, and really ask the question, why? Ask the question, what if? And ask the question, if we really should be doing this, what then happens to us? So many questions that we should be asking that are not being asked, and I'm going to hopefully help cover a lot of these conversations in these next few episodes. But before we get into it, I want to talk about one of our sponsors. Collagen is such a hot topic right now being talked about all over the social media world, influencers, and and good Collagen is so important to you, but knowing the collagen that you're using and how it's extracted and how it's actually working with your body is so important. Collagen is a protein found in 25 to 30% of the whole body. It's present in our connected tissue, such as our skin, tendons, ligaments, gut, blood vessels, bones, and muscle tissue. It's one of the most common proteins in the body. And and unfortunately, as we age, the natural making of collagen decreases, making it even more important to include it as a supplement in our daily routine. What if I told you that there was a collagen product on the market today that also helps to melt away your fat? 
I have found a product that not only has patented bioidentical and bioavailable collagen, which basically means it's identical to the human body. So not only do we fully absorb it, but we recognize it. So we actually can utilize it, but it also can burn fat. Trim not only includes the daily recommended collagen hyaluronic acid matrix collagen, but it includes CLA, which is conjugated linoleic acid. This helps to accelerate fat reduction, reduce fat cell line, reduce fat cell formation, improves your muscle tone, boosts your metabolism, helps you burn more calories and promotes lean body composition. I don't know about you guys, but summer is right around the corner and I am working on my beach body right now. And this product has helped dramatically me help burn those fat cells, but also work on that body composition. So if you are wanting to shred some extra fat this summer, while also supporting your body's natural collagen levels, you can try the trim. I personally love the chocolate. It tastes like brownie batter. It is so good. And you can actually try it for $10 off. It's super simple to order. Go to modere.com. That's M-O-D-E-R-E.com and search for trim collagen. Again, my favorite's the chocolate. It tastes like brownie batter, but there's so many other delicious flavors that are all vegan organic, natural, gluten-free, low, low, low sugars, no artificial sugars, no artificial sweeteners, all very, very good ingredients while also tasting delicious. So again, go to modeer.com and search for trim collagen and at checkout use code 4842132 to save you $10 off your first order. So the very first vaccine that we vaccinate for is the hepatitis B vaccination. Before we dive into the conversation of the hepatitis B vaccination and the hepatitis B disease, I want to talk about questions that you need to be asked before even considering this vaccine or any vaccine, quite frankly. Because here's what I find in my discussions that I have with people on vaccines and why they decide to opt in for these vaccines, it's because they simply don't know. They aren't educated. And I feel like there is a bunch of fear tied to the conversation of vaccines because as these doctors and these medical professionals and the television even does is they put this fear on us. That's quite frankly, so unfair. They put this fear on us that if you don't give your child this vaccine, they are going to get cancer and die. And that you are this horrible parent if you choose not to vaccinate. And so in order to be a good parent, you need to vaccinate. And then we sit there and nobody really knows why they're vaccinating. No one really knows what they're even vaccinating for. They just do it because their doctors tell them to. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't trust our doctors. What I do and always do believe is that our doctors owe us informed consent. And by having informed consent, then we can make the informed decision of whether or not we want to go forward with or without giving the vaccine to our children. And thinking about giving a vaccine to a child that is one day old, that just came out of their mother's womb, that is entering this beautiful land that we live on earth. They just joined us on earth. And here we are 
injecting their pure bodies with things that do we really even know why we're doing it? So a hepatitis B, a couple of questions I want you guys to ask. Number one, why and does my newborn baby need a hepatitis B vaccine? Number two, what exactly is hepatitis B? Number three, if my prenatal labs show that I am not infected with hepatitis B, why does my baby still need to be vaccinated? Number four, isn't hepatitis B an infection spread through sex and drug use? Number five, how could my baby get infected with hepatitis B? Number six, what if I wait until my child is older to get them vaccinated for the hepatitis B? Number seven, what is in the hepatitis vaccine? Number eight, what are the side effects? Number nine, what is the risk versus benefits? And number 10, do you have full informed consent? We talked very briefly about the hepatitis B in one of our episodes on the vaccine conversation, where essentially I discussed that the hepatitis B vaccine actually started being given to newborn babies as a part of compliance. Hepatitis B is, we're going to go over a very common disease that is spread through sex and drugs. And what they were finding was that the hepatitis B vaccine was not being given to the high risk people because they were probably too high on drugs or too busy doing their thing with their people or their person or whatever that may be. Right. So because of that, these high risk people for hepatitis B were probably your least likely to actually show up for that vaccine. And so because of that, they just said, well, you know what, let's give it to our newborn babies on the day that they are born to ensure compliance. Let's give our newborn babies a vaccine for a disease that really is the most common during sex and drug use. A newborn baby. Hmm. All right. So the hepatitis B. So according to the CDC, every single person needs the hepatitis B vaccine. Keep in mind when we are talking about anything a living organism needs, we have to remember that we are all different and unique. There is never a one size fits all model. As far as we can understand hepatitis B, this is a communicable infection that can, in, in debated percentages, progress to cirrhosis, liver cancer, and death. Populations at risk are those that have unprotected sex, use IV drugs, those transfused or in blood contact with an infected party, right? Because newborn babies are in that group. Of adults infected, 90 to 95% actually clear the virus on their own without intervention. According to the medical school textbook, Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine, the concern for infant contraction of the virus is that the immature neonatal immune system allows for the virus to hang out chronically in up to 90% of cases. Then in second or third decade of life, most of these infected cases enter the HB 
EAG plus phase where they may be escalating risks for cirrhosis, progressive liver damage, and cancer. Viral replication, the genotype of the virus, eight are known. Liver cell damage has measured by enzymes and characteristics of the host immune response render the movement through different phases of chronic infection quite variable. So when those mothers with active infection as determined by, by testing for these viral DNA and antigen antibodies, managing the transmission to the baby is, is a compelling concern. And, and because of that is why the CDC really pushes this vaccination. So do they find it important to inject our babies with hepatitis B for non-compliance of the high-risk people? Yes, they do. They also really, really promote the administering of this vaccine to mothers who test for this antibody or antigen for hepatitis B. But as we're going to discuss here in a little bit, does that necessarily mean that that pathogen is going to be transferred? Again, it's all informed consent. We have to just keep asking why. So before we get into that, I, I want to ask another question. Why do they not test at-risk populations rather than just blanket vaccinate the entire population of infants whose immune system are only hours old? Again, your newborn, fresh earth side needs this injection of genetically engineered recombinant viral DNA inserted into a yeast cell because they are reportedly easy to capture at that point and assure compliance, unlike the high-risk adults. So basically, because there are uncompliant high-risk adults, your newborn infant suffers the consequences. However, Prevention of vertical transmission, essentially from the mother to the child, is thought of as the primary indication. So this is actually one of the biggest reasons why the CDC says that you need to vaccinate is because of the highly likelihood of the transmission from a mother to a child, which would also make you wonder if mom tests negative, then why the push? There's an interesting study that I'm going to link in the show notes that I really want you guys to check out. It's a, it's a study that was done, actually a clinical trial that assessed for the infectious statuses of 259 pregnant women with hepatitis B by looking at the presence of viral DNA, viral antigens called HBEAG and HBSAG, which indicate that the body is actively infected and antibodies to both antigens. All of the babies in the study were vaccinated at weeks zero. So the, the day they were born, week six, week 10, and week 14. So as has been the case of every study of vaccine efficiency and safety, there was no naturalistic placebo group. Naturally, we talked about that last week. One group of these babies received hepatitis immunoglobulin, HBIG, which is derived from actively infected adults actively infected adults, and the other group did not, and they assessed their levels of infection over a two-year period. They looked deeper than in pre previous studies because they looked at the presence of the viral DNA in these babies over time, not just the antibody production or immune response. Here is what they found. Quote from the trial, 
The results of this large prospective longitudinal study shows that 42% of babies born with HBSAG positive mothers develop occult HBV infection, which is not prevented by the administration of recumbent HPV vaccine to the newborn. No historical studies claiming vaccine efficiency have ever actually tested have ever actually tested for the persistent presence of viral DNA. And in fact, most of these have assessed only for the presence of antibodies. What this really, really boils down to is that it's a 1% coin toss whether the vaccine will actually work even in at-risk infants where the mother tests positive for hepatitis B. Not to mention what is the risk when we know a mother or father are not positive at all. Again, we talked about this last week. No placebo studies on this. They tested this hepatitis B trial vaccine against a different vaccine. They also don't have sufficient evidence or clinical studies claiming vaccine efficiency. If you can look one up and find one, please send it to me. But all we really go on is medical professionals saying that we must get this. But we don't have too much data of of why and what really we are at risk for. But then what about the risks of getting this vaccine? I want to draw you guys to the vaccine insert of the the hepatitis B vaccine, and also really point out the, the fishiness of wording. So the first thing I want to read, and this goes on to the study that I just shared. So 2.4 reads, booster vaccinations. The duration of the protective effect of the Recumbax HB and healthy vaccine is unknown at present, and the need for booster doses is not yet defined. So basically in standard English, this essentially is saying that the protective length is unknown and the need for boosters is not yet defined. So we vaccinate our young children are are not even young children, are newborns for a vaccine that in the insert can't even prove how long this vaccine will last. So we vaccinate for a essentially a, a pathogen that becomes more high risk when we are adults, because unless you are really sick and twisted in the mind, you maybe should go hang out in Disney. But but if you are sick and twisted in the mind, then you would think that a newborn baby is doing things like having sex and doing drugs. But yet we're giving these vaccine to these newborns who we don't, we can't even guarantee if this vaccine is even going to work when they potentially could be at more high risk. Because right now they're not at any high risk, especially if mother is not tested positive for hepatitis B. So I find that very interesting that that is very blatantly easily to be read in the vaccine insert. 5.5 states limitations of the vaccine effectiveness. Hepatitis B virus has a long incumbent period 
Yeah, the Recumbix Vax HB may not prevent hepatitis B infection in individuals who have an unrecognized hepatitis B infection at the time of vaccination. Additionally, vaccination with Recumbix HB may not protect all individuals. What this is essentially saying is we have no idea how long this will protect you, and we have no idea if it will even work, and we have no idea if you will need a booster, but give it to your children on the day they're born. Another part of the insert that I find extremely confusing, and, and this is going into the conversation of side effects. First, I want to read the insert, and then I want to go into a different conversation of side effects. But in the insert, and this is why I think the, the control and, and the wording process of inserts and of this is very interesting because when you read this, they word it so perfectly to where you almost believe that you are doing what's best for you. But if you really break down the wordings of things, it starts to make sense. So in 16.1, first, I want to explain that 16.1 is a controlled study. Remember, the CDC does not perform double-blind placebo studies, which means every single study that they do is in a controlled group, in a controlled environment. So 16.1 states that in their clinical trials that are controlled, because clinical trials are conducted under widely varying conditions, adverse reaction rates observed in the clinical trials of a vaccine cannot be directly compared to rates in the clinical trials of another vaccine and may not reflect the rates observed in practice. Hmm, okay, so then it proceeds to talk about a clinical study that essentially is where the data, data is pulling from. And this clinical study is just from five days of being monitored after each dose. First, going back to our episode last week, where we talked about the difference between short and long-term safety studies. There are no long-term safety studies that the CDC itself produces, but I really want to go back to remind you guys that there is a difference between long-term and short-term. When you are monitoring someone for five days to see if they have effects, more than likely, you are not going to see these long-term effects that are linked towards vaccines. You've got things like Tourette's, like ADD, ADHD, depression, SIDS, autism, Guillain-Barre syndrome, schizophrenia, lots of different neurological conditions. Lots of times those aren't present within five days, unfortunately, sometimes, but it's so rare, but this study is only for five days. Why can't we get a longer safety study? They're monitoring our newborns for five days. And here's some of the, the things that it shows it came with. The most frequent reactions were irritability, fever, diarrhea, fatigue, and weakness, diminished appetite and sore injection site. And that only is at about 1%. Okay. So as a mother, if you read this and you see equal or about 1% that my kid maybe gets a little irritable, has a fever for just five days for that 1%, oh, I'll take that risk, right? They word it so great, but then you scroll down to 6.2 and, and 6.2 basically says 
The following additional adverse reactions have been reported with the use of the marketed vaccine. Because these reactions are reportedly reported voluntarily from a population of uncertain size, it's not possible to rely their frequency or establish a casual relationship to a vaccine exposure. And a very, very easy way to explain what that sentence just said is that these are vaccine reactions from real human beings that have reported them, but because it was in voluntary, it was voluntary and not in a clinical study that was controlled, we can't trust them. But yet we can trust a controlled study that was chosen by the CDC of who was going to be in that group without a placebo study. And that's what we should trust. But then you look at 16.2, some of these side effects that come from it. You have immune system disorders, asthma, arthritis, fever, eczema, autoimmune diseases, including lupus, lupus-like syndrome. You have gastrointestinal disorders. You have elevation of liver enzymes, constipation, Guillain-Barre syndrome, nervous system disorders, multiple sclerosis, febrile seizures, seizures, encephalitis, pain in extremities, eye disorders, irritability, psychiatric disorders, cardiac disorders, all serious disorders that is played off like it's nothing because it comes from voluntary real human beings who are basically reporting these. And most of this is coming from theirs, the vaccine adverse effects reporting system that reminds you, according to the Harvard study, only 1% of the population that has adverse reactions even reports into theirs. I just take, take with this what you feel. But I want to go into some other side effects that have been observed. There are unknown and unpredictable events, effects of the hepatitis B vaccine. It has never been appropriately studied in humans, obviously, because there's been no such thing as a true placebo study with any vaccine, including this one. So there technically has never been a appropriate study in science. But what we are observing from population-based reports is that 443,093 adverse events have been registered, including deaths. These of which, again, I kind of shared just recently include headache, irritability, extreme fatigue, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, autoimmune disorders, including lupus, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and neuropathy. You also have SIDS being labeled here. In a historic report in 1994 published by the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences reviewed the medical literature for evidence that vaccines, including the hepatitis B vaccine, can cause a variety of immune and neurological health problems. An independent committee of physician experts concluded that there were no case-controlled observed studies or controlled clinical trials conducted on hepatitis B vaccine either before or after licensure to scientifically evaluate persistent reports that hepatitis B vaccine can cause SIDS, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and other diseases, including transverse myelitis, optic neuritis, and multiple sclerosis, and immune system dysfunction, including chronic arthritis. But let's go ahead and inject our newborns for a vaccine for a sexually transmitted disease that our newborns are not at risk for. 
I'm not going to touch too heavily on ingredients in these conversations because we have a whole entire episode on ingredients. So if you are curious what ingredients are in vaccines, go back a few episodes and check out the episode on ingredients and vaccines. But I do just want to very quickly cover what is in each vaccine. So the hepatitis B vaccine is a recumbent absorbed hepatitis B vaccine that is prepared from transformed Chinese hamster ovary cells and is a liquid product that contains hepatitis B surface antigen that is redendered and soluble by adding aluminum salt. Like I was sharing, one of the most common hepatitis B vaccines that is given is that Recumbivax vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine. This vaccine includes soy peptoin dextrose, amino acids, mineral salts, phosphate buffer, formaldehyde, potassium aluminum sulfate, amphormous aluminum hydrophosphate sulfate, and yeast protein. So we are injecting our children on the day they're born with hepatitis B vaccine that includes aluminum. And if you go back to that ingredients episode, it's 12, just about 12 to 14 times the allowed amount of aluminum per body weight we are giving to our newborns, as well as yeast protein, we are giving our newborn babies yeast. And we wonder why so many newborns have gastrointestinal and digestive issues because we are giving them a yeast protein right away. And formaldehyde, a known carcinogen that is linked to childhood leukemia, all in our hepatitis B vaccine that we administer on the day our babies are born. What about, so something that I always think that needs to go through your mind when you talk about or think about these vaccines is the risk versus benefits. When it comes to risk benefits, one of the things we need to ask ourselves is number one, if you are the mother, are you hepatitis B positive? And number two, is my infant sexually active or exposed to drug abuse or dirty needles or blood on a daily basis? If you are hepatitis B positive, again, thinking of the study that I shared at the beginning of this episode, 42% of babies born with this HBSAG positive antigen from their mothers develop HPV, whether or not they got the vaccine. So even giving the vaccine does not ensure your child is protected. It can be useful for at-risk groups, absolutely. However, if there is no risk, then what is the rush to inject some potentially questionable ingredients into hours-old infants? Is the push to try to capture at-risk groups of adults at the expense of billions of innocent babies? The next vaccine, or lack of vaccine, I guess I could say, that I want to talk about is the vitamin K shot. The vitamin K shot is actually not considered a vaccine. It is considered a vitamin. And the purpose of this vitamin is to help blood clotting. What I also think is very important to share is the vitamin K shot or vitamin not vaccine, the vitamin K injection is a synthetic form of vitamin K. 
And I do truly feel, and I've talked about this even on non-vaccine episodes, that synthetic of anything is not nearly as beneficial as the actual vitamin or nutrient or whatever it may be by itself. So the vitamin K injection was recommended to give to children because of a blood clotting problem. And they claimed that infants that are vitamin K deficient have a disorder that can be called infant hemorrhaging disorder. Just like the hepatitis B vaccine, I think there's important questions we need to ask. Why are, why am I administering this vaccine? What are the risks if I do not administer this vaccine? What are the risks if I do administer this vaccine? And And does my child really need this vaccine? So a little bit of history and backstory. There are about four babies out of 4 million babies in the United States who get vitamin K deficiency bleeding every single year, which is known as VKDB. Again, every four babies out of 4 million babies get vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Of the four babies, this absolutely possibly cannot be due to the medications that women take while they're pregnant, maybe trauma that the woman and the baby suffer during childbirth, early cord clamping, the low levels of gut bacteria that infants have because we wipe it up with antibiotics, infant circumcision, or the hepatitis B vaccine that's given to your baby during its first few hours of life to protect it, once again, against a disease transferred via sex and dirty needles. It's also a very interesting coincidence that one of the many possible adverse reactions to all infant vaccines includes encephalitis, which can coincidentally cause hemorrhaging. I first want to have a conversation about God. If you don't believe in God, whatever higher power you believe in, I personally do not believe that God makes any mistakes. I do not believe that all of a sudden in the last few decades, God decided to start creating our children with vitamin K deficiencies. We did so good. Our babies never needed a synthetic vitamin K injection on the day they were born for so many babies in our history. But yet now suddenly in the last few years, more than a few years, but you guys get the idea. We need to inject our babies with synthetic vitamin K, which is actually the only vaccine currently on the schedule that has a black box warning. And if you are not familiar with what a black box warning is, that basically states that this procedure, or in this case, injection can cause death. A black box warning. For a synthetic vitamin that is for a hemorrhaging, that is for the fear of hemorrhaging for our babies in their first few months of life. Before we really dive into what the vitamin K injection is, what it all is, I want you to ask your question is why are newborn babies hemorrhaging in the first place? 
What is causing our newborn babies to bleed in the first place? Why are our babies suffering brain bleeds at birth? Hmm. Do you think it has anything to do with that we're injecting these babies with something that could harm them to protect them from something that occurs so rarely that we don't even keep stats on it? But do you know what we also don't keep stats on? Babies who are injured by the vitamin K shot. If your child got leukemia from the vitamin K shot, sure, we'll acknowledge it. Studies actually do prove it until enough people start asking questions, though. We can sit there and pretend that all of these studies was wrong, conflicted, or the people who did them were just high on common sense. Like all vaccines and medications, the CDC and your pediatricians and your OBGYNs and your doctors will claim that the vitamin K injection is completely safe. Those adverse reactions in the package inserts are just there for fun. But don't bother reading the black box warning. It's just the lives of our children that we hold in our hands. The black box warning that is on the vitamin K shot is severe reactions, including fatalities, have also been reported following intramuscular administration. Typically, these severe reactions have resembled hypersensitivity or encephalitis, including shock and cardiac and or respiratory arrest. Warning. Benzyl alcohol as a preservative in bacteriostatic sodium chloride injection has been associated with toxicity in newborns. Benzyl alcohol has been reported to be associated with fatal gasping syndrome in premature infants. Do your leafy greens come with a could cause death black box warning? I, I know when I eat leafy greens that are very high in vitamin K, There is no black box warning on there. The vitamin K, the synthetic vitamin K that a baby gets through a biologically unnatural intramuscular injection is not the same vitamin K a person gets when they chop down a leaf and it's not the same form of vitamin K that's found in breast milk. Synthetic vitamins, like I shared, and vitamins in their natural state are not the same, nor are they processed by the body the same way. That is why we call lab-made vitamins synthetic. In case you were wondering, a synthetic, non-naturally occurring substance, complete with additives and preservatives, is also known as a drug. A little bit more backstory on vitamin K. So vitamin K1 was only discovered in 1929 and scientists still don't entirely understand how it works. As it pertains to infants, they know all babies have lower levels than adults and they think that this is a deficiency that needs to be fixed or controlled, like the low levels of iron and vitamin D that babies also have. But how big of a risk is vitamin K deficiency bleeding anyway? Again, according to the onset of early age, early vitamin K deficiency disorder present within 24 hours of birth is almost exclusively seen in infants of mothers taking drugs, which inhibit vitamin K and mothers who had antibiotics. If you are not on drugs during your pregnancy, or if you had not taken antibiotics during your pregnancy, or if the baby was not given antibiotics on the day that they were born, why are we injecting our newborn babies with a synthetic vitamin that they don't fully need or are at risk 
of not having the natural form of vitamin K. In fact, classic vitamin K deficiency disorder occurs between 24 hours and seven days of life and is actually associated with the delayed or insufficient feeding, birth trauma, vaccinations, circumcisions, and the unnecessary medical interventions. The clinical presentation is often mild with bruises, gastrointestinal blood loss, or bleeding from the umbilicus and puncture sites. Blood loss can, however, be significant, and intracellular hemorrhage, although rare, has been described. Estimacy of frequency vary from 0.25% to 1.5%. So what does that mean? Look at the chance that your child actually has at experiencing a hemorrhage, 0.25 to 1.5%, and yet parents opt in injecting their children with a synthetic vitamin that has a black box warning for these low statistics. And remind you, these statistics are most highly in cases of children that have insufficient bleeding, early cord clamping, vaccinations, circumcisions, and unnecessary medical interventions. There's something else that I want to talk about So as this study shows that most children are at risk between their first 24 hours up to seven days for hemorrhaging because of lack of vitamin K. And within those times, it's because our our newborns do not, they slowly get more vitamin K. They say actually by day eight, you should have a healthy level of natural vitamin K. And I truly do believe that God designed our bodies to do that for a reason. And let me go into that per science and clinical research. Vitamin K at birth being low is actually beneficial and protective for a reason. Here's some examples. First, in order to absorb vitamin K, we have to have a functioning biliary and pancreas system. Your infant's digestive system isn't fully developed at birth, which is why we give babies breast milk and delay solids. There's a reason for that, guys, until they're about six months old and why breast milk only contains a small amount of highly absorbable vitamin K. Too much vitamin K can actually tax the liver and cause brain damage. As baby ages and the digestive tract, the mucus lining, gut flora, enzyme functions develop, the baby can process more vitamin K. Low levels of vitamin K at birth just makes sense. Secondly, cord blood contains stem cells, which protect a baby against bleeding and perform all sorts of needed repairs inside an infant's body. In order for a baby to get this protective boost of stem cells, cord cutting needs to be delayed and the blood needs to remain thin so stem cells can easily travel and perform their functions. Imagine that. Baby has his or her own protective mechanism to prevent bleeding and repair organs. It's like God knew what he was doing. But this actually wasn't discovered until after we started routinely giving infants vitamin K injections. 
Another reason why a newborn might have low levels of vitamin K is because its intestines are not yet colonized with bacteria needed to synthesize the vitamin K cycle isn't fully functional to newborns. It makes sense then to bypass the gut and inject vitamin K right into the muscle, doesn't it? But a baby's kidneys aren't fully functioning either. So that could cause even more of a problem. When we talk about the vitamin K injection, I also think it's important to realize that The vitamin K, the synthetic form of vitamin K that's actually in this vaccine, or I'm sorry, in this vitamin is actually the lowest amount per ingredient in this entire shot. So the shot contains more of other ingredients than the actual thing you're injecting it for that vitamin K, which is again, synthetic. It has hydrochloric acid, which we use in our households for cleaning tough stains. And it's found in our household cleaners. It's got benzyl alcohol, castor oil. It's not just a vitamin. Again, it is a majority of the ingredients that aren't even a, aren't even the vitamin. And again, the synthetic vitamin, not the real vitamin. Precautions of this on top of the black box warning include studies of carcinogen and impairment of infertility that have not been conducted. So there is no study on the carcinogen effects or the fertility effects of this shot. And what's also crazy is on the insert of this shot, it states that it's actually not a clotting agent. But don't we inject this vitamin to help with infant clotting disorders? I want to go into a very probably controversial topic when talking about the vitamin K shot, because I feel it's important and I feel it is a part of informed consent. The first conversation is on two routine procedures that happen in the delivery of your child and the instant arrival of your child on Earthside. And that is the routine procedures of cord clamping and circumcision. The first conversation of cord clamping in standard practice, you are to clamp the cord, the umbilical cord that is essentially attached to mom and child. The mother creates the placenta, which is essentially what feeds and gives the baby nutrients while it is in the womb and also while it is out of the womb. In or out, that placenta is still providing nutrients to the newborn. And we also actually just talked about this when discussing the stem cells and the nutrients that are in the placenta that are being given to the child after childbirth. And most hospitals and most doctors will want to clamp the cord instantly. What people don't fully understand is that placenta still is working to give nutrients to that child. God works in mysterious ways. And that child needs the nutrients and the vitamins and the stem cells and everything that is in the placenta. And when we essentially are cutting off that supply, when it is still pulsating, when it is still feeding that child, we are cutting off immense amounts of vitamins and nutrients 
and stem cells that that child needs. So whether or not you are choosing to administer this vitamin or not, I highly encourage you to do research and look into delayed cord clamping. Give yourself full informed consent on why we court, why we clamp the cord early and what the benefits of could be if you delay it. A lot of people in the more, I guess you could say natural wellness area will recommend delaying the clamping of the cord, essentially cutting off the placenta to the baby until the cord stops pulsating, until that cord starts to get smaller and starts to fill with less nutrients and look a little bit more gray. Because that essentially means that the placenta has given the remaining of the nutrients needed to the baby. Again, God knows what he was doing. But these shots are trying to take away what God designed our bodies to do. The second thing that I want to talk about is is something that's extremely controversial and and still is a little bit of a new area for me and, and I guess still could be a little controversy in my world, but that's the idea of circumcision. Did you know that infant hemorrhaging disorder is the most common in males? It's actually 67.7 more likely that a male baby is going to hemorrhage versus a female. Why, you may ask? Well, what is the one thing that males do when they are born that females don't do? We cut off a part of their genitals. And if you believe it or not, the most common complication of the routine circumcision that is taking place in the hospitals is hemorrhaging. Another thing that's very interesting at hospitals is most of the time you cannot decline a vitamin K shot if you want to circumcise your child. Going into the conversation of circumcising, I, I do not want to anyone to feel like this is something that they should or should not do, because I truly do understand that it's a very cultural thing. It's also a very religious thing, but I want to just share some statistics with you guys, because I do feel that this is a little bit more into the realm of informed consent. Circumcision is actually not common outside of the United States. Yes, if you are living in the United States, your statistical odds of being circumcised is very high. Women, the statistical odds of you being with another male that is circumcised is very high because the United States has the highest statistical rates of circumcising. And outside of the United States, it's very low outside of Muslim religions because it's actually a religious ceremony on the eighth day. Looking at other countries that circumcise, it's it's very low, if non-existent. And it again, it, it just kind of makes you wonder, well, why is the United States the highest and one of the only countries that does routinely circumcise at such vast majorities? 
while remembering the United States is also the most medicated individuals in the world and also not the most healthy because I think this is what the important conversation is. And again, I feel like I am walking on some fine waters here because I know I am not a man. So I know I am not one to share a man's parts, but what I can explain and what I can as a female, I feel like understand is why are we making the claim of looking like other people? I think most of the conversation of why we circumcise is so they look like their dad or so they look like the other kids in the locker room. I I just want us to kind of evaluate why are we, why are we comparing our genitals first? Second, what about other body parts? I'm pretty sure that my boobs look different than other women's boobs that my nose looks different from other, my mom's nose, that my eyes look different than my dad's eyes and my arms look different than my Nana's arms and my feet look different than my grandma's feet. Just just something to ponder on on the conversation of, of looking the same, but also because everyone else does it. And I think the other reason why we are told that we circumcise is actually for sanitation. Well, let's, let's look into that. Let's look into the idea of sanitation, because if you actually study the people that are uncircumcised, which is most everyone outside of the United States, we need to study if we are really more sanitary down there, or if other people are more, or if it's inconclusive. When we did not have very strong sanitation practices, yes, our circumcising routine did statistically at a very low, low increase show that you were a little bit more sanitary down there, but that was during a time when we did not have much sanitary practices, AKA clean water, good soaps, good environment, but now in an environment where most of the world that especially is studied in these studies do have the same sanitary practices. And then if you look across the board of, are you more sanitary or not? If you are circumcised or not, it's almost inconclusive. So we cut off the ends of our baby's penises on the day that they are born for a concern that they are not going to be as sanitary that has officially been debunked. And what also has been debunked is the the statistics of penile cancer. The cancer.org has even shared that in the past that there have been thoughts that penile cancer will decrease with circumcision, but they have contracted that statement and says that this is not true. Look at the statistics of the United States penile cancer and even sanitation compared to countries that do not circumcise. And there is hardly any differences that prove that this is true. And in fact, if you really look at these studies, there is actually more cancer. Cancer is more common in circumcised males than uncircumcised males. Penile cancer is directly linked with cleanliness, whether or not you are snipped. 
So being snipped has nothing now in today's day and age having to do with your sanitary practices, with cancer rates, then just simply cleaning yourself. Do you also know what happens with the foreskin after a procedure? There's actually hospitals that sell baby foreskin. Foreskin fibroblasts in specific are a beauty product that is very, very highly recognized and is a beauty product for many expensive, nonetheless, not as common, but in high, high wealth communities, even Oprah, it is discussed to be used because it's a natural collagen producer and it can help promote youthful appearance. I will link an article showing the sale for foreskin of babies for $570. Don't believe me? Check out the Oriel Institute of New Jersey. They are one of the hospitals that do sell the foreskin of your baby. It is in a lot of the fine print that you have to sign for circumcisions. I want to ask you guys a question. Why is it that the United States does things? And again, I want to ask the question, why is the United States the most heavily circumcised community? Also, why is the United States the most heavily vaccinated community? Remember, vitamin K deficiency and hemorrhaging is most common in males and most males are getting circumcised. Do we think the two are related? In the United States, they circumcise in the hospital on day one of the baby's life when vitamin K levels are the lowest. And actually in the Muslim culture, per per the religious ceremony, they actually wait until the eighth day to circumcise. And if you are someone who is listening to this saying, well, I still want to circumcise, but I don't want to get the vitamin K shot or I, I nervous about hemorrhaging. An option that you have is to wait until day eight. Cause remember, like I said, between day 24 and seven are the days where your vitamin K levels in your newborn are the lowest on day eight is when they are at safe, healthy levels. So the Muslim culture actually waits until the eighth day where the newborn is able to produce much more vitamin K than when they are born. And again, interesting. It's like God knew what he was doing in the case of this religious ceremony for Muslims during the first week. It is when the body increases the vitamin K producing ability the most days after birth. In fact, eight day eight and on is when it is safest, not saying it's safe, but it is the safest to circumcise versus on the first day or two of a baby's life. And I, I'm not here to have the debate of whether or not you should circumcise at, at all. But I truly in my heart and soul feel the conversation of circumcision needs to be had when we talk about the vitamin K shot, because they are so heavily related. They are so heavily related that many studies, many links, many, many, many people will share and prove and and show that the two are very related. Hemorrhaging that happens when you circumcise. So we need to give the vitamin K shot. 
And if you choose not to circumcise, then do you really need the vitamin K shot? And even if you do circumcise, do you still really need the vitamin K shot? I can't tell you the answer to that question. I can't tell you the answer to either of the questions of whether or not you should get the vitamin K or the hepatitis B vaccine. What I can tell you is that you need to be more informed. You need to know the risks that are present for you and baby. You need to know why one is linked to the other. You need to know what will happen if you do get the vaccine and how protected you really are. And you need to know what you're injecting into that child and what the side effects of injecting a child with say aluminum at such high levels when can you really even guarantee the efficiency of that vaccine? These are questions that we need to ask. And sadly, we're not asked them because we are just thrown the fear. We are just thrown fear that if you don't get vitamin K, if your child does not get the vitamin K shot, they are going to hemorrhage on the table and die. And that you are a bad mom if you allow that to happen. No, you're not a bad mom or a bad dad for declining something that you and your heart and soul don't feel is necessary. And if you feel it's necessary, good, because you made that choice. You are allowed to make the choices. We need more choice and we have choice and we can take that choice. You do not have to administer vitamin K or hepatitis B on the day that your baby is born. And if you feel after the day that they're born, let's say you wait a week and you decide that you want to give that baby those shots then that's okay too. There is such thing as delayed vaccines. There is such thing as waiting. You are allowed those things. You just need to ask the questions and you just need to be informed. So I know we talked about some pretty heavy things and probably some pretty controversial things. And I'm sure I'm gonna get a lot of questions on some of the things that I've talked about, but guess what? I truly do feel that the things that we talked about on this show tie together. Why the United States has some of the highest statistical rates of many of these issues and how all of a sudden things are tied together. And again, when we can look at the United States and see our statistic on things for doing something and look elsewhere and see, let's say, lower statistics That's what makes my eyebrows raise. Well, these countries don't do that and they're doing just fine. Hmm. It's almost like that would be the placebo studies or that would be the studies against someone who is not doing the thing. Nope, but we wouldn't do that because we are told we have to get these things or our child is going to die. If you feel like you were in that position, I want to just throw my arms around you and give you a hug because you are worthy, you are powerful, and you are the gatekeeper of your home. And nobody knows your child more than you know your child. No doctor, no lawyer, no physician, no nurse, no pediatrician, no OBGYN knows your child the way you, mom, or dad knows your child. Remember that. Remember that every single day you go to that pediatrician's office and they try to push something on you that you and your gut does not feel is good. 
You are your child's advocate. So advocate for them. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. And next week, we are going to move through the CDC schedule and talk about the next vaccines that are on the schedule. As always, if you enjoy this week's show, please throw me a rating and review. Those reviews are so meaningful and go a long way to help me get this out to more people. And please share this with anyone that you feel might need this show. I hope you guys all have a wonderful week and I will see you guys next. And I will be here next week with another episode of Informed Consent.